I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today, we're looking at the Philippines, which has taken a radical change in political direction with the election of Rodrigo Duterte as president. So what happens now? Joining me to discuss the future of the country on the line from Southeast Asia is Avantika Chilcotti, and here in the studio, Tony Tassel, who once worked as a correspondent in Manila. Tony, Mr. Duterte has got headlines all over the world because of his slightly wild talk. Give us a sense of why people are so taken aback by this man. Well, I think it's been quite an election result and quite alarming for international observers that What we've seen in the Philippines in recent years under Benino Aquino is a country that is getting its act together, improving its economic performance, improving the stability of government. And what we've got coming now is a wild card. And although he has a reasonable reputation for dealing with business in his hometown of Davao as mayor, he has a fairly alarming human rights record. And there's a sense of unpredictability about his policies and how he'll manage. And for emerging markets, really, the problem is that you need a fairly simple narrative to win over foreign investors and investors. And now we're going into a situation where it could be quite mixed for a while and I mean, quite you, uncertain. You say rather kindly he's got a mixed record on, on human rights. I mean, he's been associated with vigilantes, in, has he not, in his hometown. And also he's made these pretty remarkable kind of shocking statements. Um, it's been quite extraordinary comments and consistently over time when human rights groups have accused death squads of killing say a thousand people in his home state in recent years under his watch. He said no the correct figure is more like 1700 and he sort of personally boasted of killing people and um, it's hard to tell whether this is bluster but there certainly have been large numbers of extrajudicial killings in Mindanao and in Davao where he operates. And And did he not say that he was going to dump 100,000 criminals' bodies in Manila Bay? Exactly. And he had a famous, or not becoming a sort of infamous speech, where in Manila there's a a thing called the Makati Club, which is like the establishment business club. And he was going there before the election to present his business views and outline his policies. And and business groups were looking for this to get some sort of clarity about what this guy would actually do. And he just kept talking about going after the bad guys again and shooting and killing and not really giving much idea about his policies. So, Avantika, given all that, what was it that made the voters of the Philippines turn to somebody with such wild rhetoric? I think, Gideon, you know, everyone says it's almost a protest vote. From the outside, we look at the Philippines, we see a country that's been growing on an average of sort of 6.3% over the last five years under the Aquino administration. But if you speak to people on the ground in Manila and, and surrounding areas even, There's a sense that that growth hasn't trickled down. If you look at the poverty figures, poverty's been falling only maybe one percentage point or two percentage points every couple of years. And basically, the common man feels totally left out of the boom in the Philippines. Um, President Aquino is seeing this part of this sort of weak, dithering elite. 
And Duterte is very much the opposite of that. And, you know, of course, when we talk about some of the things that Tony just mentioned, you know, he's cursed the Pope in a devout Catholic country. He's openly admitted to his links to death squads. But the idea is that he is, in the same way as Donald Trump is in the U.S., the same way that someone like Jokowi was in Indonesia or Narendra Modi was in India, he's seen as a common man. People think he has no filter. You know, he's not a preened prepared speeches. There's none of that. This guy isn't a politician. They see him as a real man who's just talking straight. And so he's forgiven quite a lot because of that. The other thing is that, again, like Donald Trump, the idea of him as a demagogue, him as sort of scaremongering. In Davao, his reputation is for tackling crime, for tackling drug abuse. And be it a real threat or not, people on the ground in Manila and especially in the south of the Philippines really think that crime and drugs are a big problem. They think that the established elite who have governed the country for so long don't understand that. They're not answering to their woes. And that's exactly what Duterte taps into, that sort of fear. The other thing I would flag is, you know, why did people vote for Duterte? I think, honestly, with the Aquino administration's legacy, the economic growth on the top line, the sort of basic political stability the Philippines has had, if he had chosen his favoured candidate carefully. A lot of political analysts say there's a chance they might have won, but Mar Rojas, who was the chosen candidate from the establishment, from the current administration, is seen as representing a lot of the things that went wrong. He was looking after home affairs and everything from bad traffic, from things like even perhaps the drug problem in the Philippines. He was seen as responsible for it. And so in a way, I guess the idea is that actually Duterte won because I guess Aquino didn't select his successor carefully enough. And he's been now, he he won about a week ago, so we've got an early flavour of what he's going to be like. What are the early indications? I think a lot of political analysts were hoping that this was all just sensationalist campaign talk. It was just tough talk. And and once he won a sweeping victory, as he did, with what looks like 40% of the vote, that he would drop some of that. Um, In fact, you know, within hours of him declaring victory, we had his campaign spokesperson talking about curfews for children. They were talking about things like curbs on alcohol sales late at night, which are, again, they're things that have worked in Davao, that, that have been in place in Davao. But the idea of stretching this to a national level has been concerning. Yesterday, even more scarily, he had his first formal press conference, Duterte, and again, in his typical style, his strongman style, he sat there um, in his casual wear, swearing every now and then, randomly serenading female journalists who are asking him questions, and he's talking about reintroducing the death penalty. So I think in terms of the concerns around his, him as a personality, they're still very much there. The only good thing we've seen in the last week is he's sort of confirmed the hopes that he'll leave economic policy at least to experienced technocrats. He's been floating a couple of names of people he will introduce to his cabinet, and they're people who've been agricultural secretaries. They've been active in past governments. They've got experience in private sector. So the one sort of thread of optimism in the last week has been perhaps he'll take a pragmatic view to economic policy at least. So, Tony, how important is that? Because, you know, a long time ago, when I was based in Southeast Asia in the 90s, the Philippines was the laggard of ASEAN. It was kind of seen as a rather sad story. Lately, it's been doing rather better. Do you think that's now set fair to continue? 
Well, I think that who he appoints as his economic managers is absolutely key, that the Philippines has often not been blessed with its political leaders. I think he once wrote a blog about Joseph Estrada was the only world leader who's fallen asleep on you during an interview. But yes. um, Estrada actually had some very good people around him and some technocrats. And actually in the late 90s, the Philippines did very well and uh, went through the crisis much stronger than other countries. And it's got a good core of technocrats. The issue is about is how much power he gives to them and how he manages them effectively. And he's made some encouraging noises recently in the last week or so, or at least his office has, on pushing for more federalism and possibly even seeking constitutional change to move towards a more parliamentary system, which I think would be a very strong idea for the Philippines um, and bringing more accountability than the politics of patronage under the current presidential system. So we'll see. But it's really a blank card at the moment in terms of how he's going to manage. And this uncertainty could last for quite a period of time. And Avantika, I mean, what are the strengths of the economy? I mean, you you made the point that ordinary people don't feel that they've been doing as well as they should have been. But on the other hand, the growth figures at least have been fairly impressive. So have the foreign direct investment figures. What has the Philippines been doing right up until now? I guess so. President Aquino had this idea of the straight path, which is just an idea of good governance, stamping out corruption. And if you speak to people in the current administration, their idea is that this started a positive cycle. It got investors feeling more comfortable, um, the country's credit rating improved to investment grade, and investments started to flow in. And there's a couple of sort of key parts of the economy that have done well. So, for instance, the um, IT outsourcing sector. I think the estimate is that that's creating 1.3 million jobs by this year. Um, If you're in the centre of Manila, somewhere like Makati, um, in the CBD, the vacancy rate is sort of 2%. These offices are full. There's lots of young English-speaking people with good jobs. Um, Even things like tourism, which are another great source of foreign exchange. The administration has sort of invested a lot in drawing tourism. Um, This is no thanks to the Aquino government, but remittances are another sort of huge boost to the Philippines. About 10% of the population lives and works abroad, and the money they sent home props up the external balances. Other than these parts of the economy, the government had actually done quite a few things to help the poor, and the success rate of these is obviously questionable, but things like conditional cash transfers, They had rolled that out and sort of focused on the program. They sort of floated some ideas like extending the amount of time that young people spend at school. They've done kind of textbook economic reforms that I think just made foreign investors feel very comfortable, basically. And Tony, on the geopolitical level, of course, the Philippines has become increasingly important because they're really at the front line of this pushback against Chinese expansionism, if you want to call it that, in the South China Sea. Does Duterte's election affect that at all? Again, it's a period of more uncertainty that he's made some rhetoric during the campaign about that he'd jet ski off to the Spratlys, which is what the Philippines call the disputed isles, that he'd negotiate directly with China. He's raised the issue already with Obama. But I would suspect that he'll be taking a more high-profile negotiating stance, particularly with the Chinese on the issue. Because there's an important court case coming up, isn't there, with the Philippines and the South China Sea, uh, Aventica? Yes, the Philippines has obviously taken this conflict to a court in The Hague. And I think so far, the idea is that the Aquino administration has been looking to international cooperation to deal with China's aggression in the region from defence deals with the US, joint patrols, all this sort of thing. It's been a very collaborative effort that's made foreign powers feel quite comfortable. 
when you speak to political analysts in Manila, their concern over Duterte is that, as we've said, he's a wild card. He's seen as someone who's going to try and perhaps distance the Philippines a bit from the U.S. He'd made some sort of horrible jokes about gang rape, and the U.S. ambassador there had spoken out against him. And Duterte was very quick, even in the campaign period, to criticize the U.S. ambassador. He's sort of spoken a lot about discussions directly with the Chinese. And while he says he doesn't want open conflict with the Chinese, there's a sense that he's going to really rebalance that relationship, whereas so far we've seen a kind of collaborative outward-looking approach to this from the Philippines. And I guess he would be a difficult partner potentially for the Americans because in a very tense situation with China, the last thing they want is a close ally who's a wild card. Yeah, I mean, so we had the first congratulatory call from Obama to um, Duterte. And there, there was a real focus on mentioning human rights and a lot of things that the international community is concerned about. And um, I think the idea of this man transitioning from a regional level leader from a mayor of Davao City to a national level leader in Manila. I think this foreign policy angle, him, the idea of him as a wild card in an international arena is definitely a top concern. Okay, so finally, uh, Tony, I mean, do you think that Mr. Duterte is going to be a figure that we hear a lot more about? I mean, the Philippines is a big country, it's 100 million people, but it doesn't normally make headlines other than when there's a revolution. Do you think he has the capacity, for better or worse, to become quite a well-known international figure? I suspect so, and a lot of people have been drawing parallels with the rise of the strongman, which you wrote about this week, that he's part of a trend of populist wildcard leaders coming to power. And I think the election campaign was quite interesting, really, for the parallels with Trump, obviously, that Duterte is much more extreme in his actions and rhetoric and a very different character. But the campaign itself, I thought, was quite interesting. That uh, One columnist in the Philippines, Alex Magno, pointed out that you know the, his advisers didn't seek to smooth out his rough edges. They sought to magnify them, if you like, and let him speak as a way of presenting himself as the common man. And also managing the election cycle was that every single day that Duterte would say something quite strong or extreme, and he dominated the news cycle. And every other candidate in the campaign was sort of pushed to the inside pages and made to seem less relevant. So a lot of the extremist rhetoric worked for him. And I think that would be a playbook, obviously played by other people as well. Yeah, well, maybe that is the direction in which world politics is going. But we'll have to leave it for now. So thanks very much indeed to Tony Tassel here in London and to Avantika Chilcotti out in Southeast Asia. That's it for this week. Until Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Next week, goodbye.